The morning of March 2nd, 2020, a couple weeks before the nation closed down with COVID-19, I went to work as Director of Community Engagement for Pillars, front and center in the work to meet the needs of the homeless population in our community. Around 4 p.m. on March 2nd, my identity, an identity embedded in the work of homelessness, was over. I had lost my job. As Lisa Deji writes in our reading today, we remember these times, times we have been as if dead, yet still our hearts beat and we move upon the earth. At that moment, I was indeed still moving, but I was certainly feeling more dead than alive. As Unitarian Universalists, our faith demands that we have hope. This has been my experience since joining the fellowship many years ago. And so, at that moment, I knew I needed to dig out of my pit of misery to somehow grab onto James Luther Adams' fifth stone, the stone of hope, to inspire me to hew an attitude of ultimate optimism. Now, I personally don't believe that Jesus died and then walked out of a tomb any more than I believe that Easter bunnies lay chocolate eggs. However, the idea that Jesus repudiated his ultimate end, death, to be reborn and, in fact, to continue to inspire all of humanity is a powerful metaphor for anyone experiencing loss of identity or personal tragedy. When I lost my job and entered my own tomb, when part of my identity died, I needed to keep shining light to stay optimistic so I could find my way out. My early days of unwanted unemployment were brutal, but I found hope in new endeavors including putting myself out there to be a force for optimism as the early days of the pandemic bore down on all of us. I rekindled my love for reading children's books aloud and subsequently created Facebook read aloud sessions to inspire a love of books. I was introduced to emotional CPR, a hope-based approach to building strong communities and I trained to be a facilitator. And with the world shut down, I channeled my love for music into online live streams, finding singers and performers that would feed my soul. Most significantly, I leaned on my wife for steadfast support and reassurance. She believed in me, in my resilience, in my ability to focus on my strengths. And she constantly assured me that my identity was much deeper than a job that I no longer had. One of my favorite songwriters, Beth Bombara, sings, You were growing wings when I heard you sing. What a strange world we live in. What would you change if you could? So with tenacious hope, I kept working on it and my wings continued to grow. During that period without a full-time job, seven long months in total, 
I often reminded myself of our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. To me, that principle bookends beautifully with Adam's fifth stone of hope and the impossible but exquisite resurrection of Jesus on Easter. Hope in all its forms. Ultimately, it's what our Unitarian Universalist faith demands. It's our ability to utilize the resources to navigate the perpetual changes in our lives. Losing a job, recovering from illness, losing a loved one. We find hope in that fifth stone, ultimate optimism, growing wings. It was that ethic that sustained me during one of my darkest times. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your story of hope with us today. If you want to make me mad, show me a movie or a TV series that does not have a happy ending. I just hate it. I'm that type of person who will watch the movie Titanic and stop it before the boat hits the iceberg. It's just a sweet story of two people who met on a boat and fell in love. When I first signed up for my Netflix account, I got sucked into binge-watching a TV series for the first time. I spent weeks consumed by this specific show. I'm not going to name what it was. I don't want to give away any spoilers. But this was one of those shows that had you on the edge of your seat with cliffhanger after cliffhanger, and you were so invested, rooting for the main character, only to find that on the last episode, they kill him off. Boy, was I pissed. I couldn't sleep that night. I complained about it for weeks to come to anyone who would listen. My high school best friend and I once went to see a movie called The Breakup. Now, I don't remember much about the movie, but I do remember walking to the car afterwards and ranting about how I had to sit through an hour and a half of will they, won't they, back and forth, and then the couple never even got together in the end. My friend reminded me that it was called the breakup. <laughs> what did I expect? Real life is complicated and stressful and it's heartbreaking enough. Can't movies and TV shows just give us a little reprieve from that and how they end? But the thing I need to remember is that movies and TV shows, the writer gets to choose when the cameras stop rolling. The writers get to choose what counts as the end. They get to choose exactly what slice of these characters' lives we see throughout the span of whatever it is that we're watching. But real life doesn't work that way, right? There's always more to the story that goes untold, more after the ending. There's always more life involved. 
the lives of the survivors after they get off those lifeboats, the ways that the bereaved family and friends of the main character eventually figure out how to live with and beyond their loss, the new experiences, new relationships, or new self-understandings that eventually follow the couple's breakup. Scott did a beautiful job sharing his own personal example of life after an ending, didn't he? And our reading today from the Reverend Lisa Daigie reminds us all of the ways that we have witnessed resurrection all around us. Second chances, cures, recovery, forgiveness, reconciliation. All of these bringing new life after what felt like an ending. And we heard James Luther Adams talk about the big picture, how the grand scheme of history has trended toward new life, trending in ultimately hopeful directions. And it's significant to note that James Luther Adams makes this claim after much of his theology was formed by seeing the horrors of Nazi Germany as we've heard about in services these past couple weeks. Still, new life continues to keep fear and devastation from having the final word. The Easter story is a great reminder that no ending is ever truly the final word. There's always going to be new life, whatever that looks like. We're not talking about a, a trite promise that everything's going to be okay. I, I wish we could say that. But instead, we're talking about a heartfelt promise that there is reason to hope. A promise that hope is justified. A promise that all signs point to hope. It's a powerful message, isn't it? A powerful message of a hope that speaks on every level, a personal level, a metaphorical level, a, a collective level. I'd like to take this opportunity to share a little bit about this man they call Jesus. You see, the stories that we hear about Jesus' birth and life and death, these are all stories from the Christian Gospels. The earliest of these Gospels, Mark, it was written probably about 30 years after Jesus died. These stories in the Christian Bible are translated records of how Jesus was remembered the stories that followers told about him, his legacy. They're stories of a man born of an oppressed people, 
a Jewish man living in the Middle East during a time when his people's land was occupied by the Roman Empire. He was not the white, blue-eyed man with well-brushed, flowing locks. I'm sure his hair was actually pretty messy. But we've seen that portrait in many churches. He was a wise teacher who questioned the status quo. He preached a fierce, expansive, rebellious, revolutionary love. He spoke truth to power. Early references to him as a savior were rooted in his followers' faith that he could liberate the Jewish people from their oppressors. That's what they meant by savior. But all of this made him a threat to the Roman Empire. And it's this same empire that killed him, using other Jewish people as pawns to do so. An ending to the threat. Or so they thought. When I picture the women who followed Jesus approaching the tomb where his body was laid, I'd imagine their walk there together was a quiet one. I'd imagine there was a quiet that swelled with grief. A grief that weighed heavy in the morning air. A heaviness that felt unreal next to the rising sun and the sounds of birds chirping. I mean, these same women who were on their way to the tomb, they had stayed with Jesus as he died. It was just the other night. They had stayed with Jesus till his final hours. We don't know where his men were, but we know that the women stayed with him till the very end, grieving with him. What great effort it must have taken to get moving on this morning after the death of this man that they so cherished. The death of this beloved man also likely signifying to them the death of their movement for liberation. Think of how hard it is to get out of bed during times of despair. Arising from a restless sleep or perhaps no sleep. A headache pounding. Exhaustion from tears. And yet, these women mustered up the will and the energy to make this journey to the tomb. And it's here at the tomb where they soon realize that their beloved teacher and leader lives on. His presence is not gone from their community of followers. And what a movement this creates. 
I'm not talking about the instant institutional church here. I'm talking about a Jesus-following movement that has inspired people for more than 2,000 years. A Jesus-following movement that has brought transformational hope to individuals, to entire communities, communities including people who were enslaved, communities including civil rights activists, more recently, the Poor People's Campaign. A Jesus-following movement. And each victory along the way has been another resurrection of Jesus and his teachings. The legacy of hope from the Easter story is undeniable. There will be new life. I love the way you, you minister, the Reverend Molly House Gordon says it. She says, quote, What strikes me most about the actual ancient text is that it is not just Jesus who supposedly rose up that morning. It was also the women who loved him, who rose up from their pit of grief to tend to him. It was also the movement that his teaching sparked, the community he nurtured who rose up in the shadow of his execution to spread his topsy-turvy message of power in weakness and the victory of love. She goes on to say, and therein lies the truth of the resurrection as I see it. That a message so profound cannot be controlled, and a community so connected cannot be contained. That love will have the final word, even if that word is just a question. A wild possibility, a whisper to rise and follow wherever it may lead. She continues, the lesson for the women the lesson for the forces of empire, the lesson for us is this. You can crush love down, bury it, cover it over, but it will rise. It will reach for the sun and we will reach for each other. Hope once planted will eventually blossom and grow even in hearts frozen by grief. Communities formed and nurtured in love will rise up for and with each other again and again and again. You see, dear ones, the thing is, whether you personally believe that the physical resurrection of Jesus happened, there's UUs who do, there's UUs who don't. There's a wide range of thinking on this, even among Christian theologians. Some do, some don't, some embrace the mystery. But whether you believe that this happened, literally, as the story is told, whether you believe that Jesus' body and or spirit was raised from the dead, or whether you believe that he lived on through his teachings and through his followers, whether or not 
You personally believe in the factual accuracy of these accounts. That doesn't change the fact that there is a deep, abundant truth here. Hope lives and moves and breathes through this story on every level. But know that when we speak of this hope, we're not speaking of a passive optimism. James Luther Adams sometimes uses optimism and hope interchangeably, and here's where I actually diverge from him, because the way I see it, there's an important distinction between optimism and hope. The Reverend Barbara Peters, a Christian minister who also happens to be my mom. Hi, Mom. She articulated this well in a sermon once. I can't do any better, so I'll share what she said. She said, My vote is on the side of hope, which wins over optimism every time. You see, there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism hangs on whatever can be gleaned from a situation as good. Hope, on the other hand, focuses on a different direction. Hope focuses on the power of God's love to see us through and to transform us. Optimism can waver. Hope never fails. Optimism may help for the short term. Hope is what we need for the long haul. Now, friends, I invite you, if you feel stuck on the word God here, please feel welcome to translate it for yourself. Perhaps for you, she's saying, hope focuses on the power of love and life to see us through and to transform us. This hope that we speak of today, it can be found by following that same love that drew those grieving women out of bed and out to the tomb that morning. It's a hope found in a community reaching for each other, the way Jesus' followers reached for each other after the devastating trauma that they witnessed at the cross. It's a hope found every time we see collective voices rise up with fierce, expansive, rebellious, and revolutionary love. Refusing to let death and destruction and despair have the final word. Knowing that new life is on its way. And therein lies the good news on this Easter Sunday, beloveds. Whatever tomb we find ourselves in, or whatever tomb we find ourselves at the entrance of, when we turn toward love and toward community, there is reason for hope. May that be so, and amen.